I want to start this morning by just giving you a few statistics about the self-help book publishing industry. Between 2013 and 2019, the number of self-help books that were published and sold rose by 11%. So that in 2019, there were 18.6 million self-help books sold in the U.S. That's just self-help books. During that same time period, the number of books that were published and identified as self-help books rose from 30,897 to 85,253. The rate of publishing for these types of books far outpaced the rate of sales for these types of books. So I want to ask, what do you think that says about us as a people as a society, we're looking. We're looking for answers. I think it shows that we have a bit of discontentment going on in here. I think it reveals that people are hungry and thirsty in their souls and they're looking for satisfaction. We are on a mission as a people to find meaning, to find purpose, to find happiness success, to find answers to our anxieties and our fears. We're searching for the past that will lead us to fulfillment. And who doesn't want those kind of things in their life, right? And unfortunately, there's plenty of people out there who are willing to write a book and sell it to us and say, here's the answer that I discovered. You need what I found. It's also pretty easy to identify what the majority of people think is the one thing that will help solve their problems and give them meaning and success. Do you care to take a guess at what that is? Anyone? Money. The number one best-selling global self-help book is Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. See, it comes down to if I just had a little bit more, I'd be happy. I'd be successful. Now, have all these self-help books really helped the world? There should be 18.6 million more people who are happier and more successful, right? You would think. Here's what someone else wrote concerning the usefulness of self-help books. Most of the advice that is given in these books makes perfect sense. But unless the reader decides to apply that advice consistently and diligently, reading those books will not change their life one inch. Unfortunately, a large majority of people fall into this trap. See, that's always our weak spot, isn't it? Actually applying and doing what we've read. Application, that's where we're weak. I believe that ever since Adam and Eve... Ever since their fall, every individual born has a soul that is now hungry and thirsty. Because it is a soul that was meant to be in relationship with God, but it is no longer. And since our sin has separated us from God, we turn our eyes to everything else that might satisfy that need that is in our souls. So I want to ask the question of you this morning. What's in your diet 
What is it that you are hungering and thirsting for? It's there in each and every one of us, so we can't deny that it's there. Some of us may be unaware of it. Do you understand what it is that drives you to do the things that you do? Why you make the choices that you make? This morning we're going to look at the fourth beatitude from Jesus. In this beatitude, Jesus mentions hunger and thirst, and, and I hope that it's clear that Jesus is talking about a spiritual condition. He's not talking about something physical. So our passage today is Matthew 5, 6. One verse, and it says, Righteous are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness, for they will be filled. There's a couple of you that caught on. What version are you reading, Tim? Righteous are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. The, the reality is that this is how many of us are living this verse. We're hungering and we're thirsting for the blessings of God, believing that we are righteous for doing so. Here's what someone else has said about this issue. Many in the church seem to have a restless search for spiritual power, for exotic spiritual gifts, and for happiness, and for peace, and emotional highs, and some other undefined blessing from God. And yet there seems to be distressingly little hunger and thirst for God himself. The pursuit of blessing can never in itself be an indication of righteousness, and it may in fact be self-centered. God calls us to focus our attention and our appetite on Him, not on the benefits that He may give us. Now let me bring this whole self-help book phenomenon a little bit closer to home. Because in the church we find Christians who are hungry and thirsty, and we also find hundreds of Christian books that are full of advice and suggestions and new habits and new affirmations, all designed to make us better Christians. And we enjoy reading these books because they do reveal some wonderful advice and some newfound wisdom that someone else has been able to pull out of Scripture for us. But once we absorb all this wonderful advice and new wisdom, what are we so apt to do? We put the book back on the shelf, and within a week or two, we have returned to life in our normal course and grind, forgetting about all the new things we swore we were going to do with our life now. And we end up falling into the same trap that everyone else does. We fail to actually apply the things that we have read, and we believe that acquiring the spiritual blessings of, and the benefits of God is going to satisfy that hunger and thirst in our soul. So we come down to, if I just had a little bit more of his spiritual blessing, if I had a little bit more spiritual giftedness, I would be a better Christian. I would be happier. I would be more successful. Now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you spend a lot of time reading Christian books or other devotionals and self-help, things like that. I do. I read them. I have in the past. But I want to tell you that I think many times we would simply be 
better served if we would open up his word and tell the Holy Spirit, I'm hungry for God, and let the Holy Spirit satisfy our thirst by giving us Jesus. See, I don't need to know all the other ways that God has spoke to someone else in Scripture to be happy. I don't need to know all the new techniques and tricks to gain his spiritual benefits for me to be complete. My soul needs Jesus, and he's found here. So I want to read our passage again today, so I can get it on record what it actually does say. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The first thing I'm going to address is righteousness, because I think it is imperative that we settle right away what it is that Jesus is talking about when he says righteousness. And then we're going to look at hungering and thirsting. Now you're going to find a variety of definitions for righteousness, and you're even going to find an an even greater variety of opinions and commentaries about what it is that Jesus is saying in this verse. Some of the older commentators definitely associate righteousness with the spiritual blessings aspect. See, Jesus attained for us all the spiritual blessings of heaven, and this is what we are to earnestly seek and desire. Now, as I've just pointed out, I think there's a little bit of a danger there in the fact that we may end up pursuing the blessings of God rather than pursuing God himself. However, I do want to make it clear that there's certainly not anything wrong with desiring the blessings of God. Now another interpretation for what Jesus is saying relates to justice. The Greek word that is used in this verse is occasionally translated as justice. And so you may have a Bible version, or you may see a Bible version that says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. They will be satisfied. Now, as I studied this verse, I noticed a trend in newer commentaries and in the newer study Bibles to really emphasize a social justice interpretation of this verse. And this largely coincides with the rise of that subject in, in our culture. Many modern commentators claim this verse is emphasizing the desire to see justice executed on the earth. And our appetite, the things that, that we are to seek, is justice and equality among all people. And while I agree that's certainly something that we as Christians want to see in our society... I think that this interpretation really doesn't quite fit well with the context of the rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, nor within the context of the rest of the Beatitudes that Jesus has shared with us. So what is it that Jesus is saying? The first thing I want to do is give you a basic foundation for understanding righteousness. Strongly associated with this word is the concept of approval. And if you want to be even a little bit more specific, it is judicial approval. See, there is a state, there is a condition that is required for anyone or anything to be approved of God or to be acceptable to God. Now, there's an action side of this approval where it is displayed through our activities. 
We are to judge fairly. We are to treat everyone alike, to be impartial. We are to practice justice. We are to practice equality. And this is why this verse is sometimes says justice in some Bibles. But there's also a character or an internal component side of this approval. And it is about having a heart that is right with God or a heart that is approved of God. And this heart displays integrity and virtue and purity of life and rightness. And it is correct in its thinking and feeling and acting. Some other words that sometimes are associated with righteousness is piety, godliness, or reverence. So how do we know which side Jesus is talking about in this verse? Well, Jesus uses the word righteousness five times in his Sermon on the Mount. And when we look at the way he used that term in his sermon, and when we consider the context of the other Beatitudes that we've been looking at, we see that Jesus is talking about the internal component, the heart component of approval. So let me rephrase Matthew 5, 6 in a way that will express the thought. Blessed are those who earnestly crave what it takes to be made right in the heart in order to gain God's approval. I think this is a good explanation because I think it fits perfectly with what Jesus has been saying in his other Beatitudes. The poor in spirit are those who know that they don't have anything on their own with which they can gain salvation. Those who mourn are mourning the condition of sin that exists within them and within the world. Those who are meek remain humble before God, understanding that of their own they have nothing, but in God they have everything. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness know that they do not have what it takes to meet God's judicial approval, but they earnestly desire it. So let's quickly look at Jesus' five uses of righteousness in his sermon. We'll, we'll get a clearer picture of what he means by righteousness. His first use is in our passage today. And we can conclude from this statement that righteousness is something that we are lacking. That's why we are hungering or thirsting for it. I want you to listen to Romans 3, 10 to 11. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. This already ought to suggest to you that if you think good people will have God's approval, you need to understand that God doesn't see good people anywhere. Every one of us is already falling behind in terms of gaining God's approval if we're relying on our own goodness. So Jesus tells us that there is a blessing for hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But four verses later in Matthew 5.10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So wait a minute. I'm blessed for hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and I'm blessed if I'm persecuted because of it. If righteousness leads to persecution, why on earth would I ever want to hunger and thirst for it? 
Another question is, why would I be persecuted if I'm just seeking God's approval? Because our hunger and our thirst for His approval is so real. It is so visible that it impacts our lifestyle. The righteousness Jesus is speaking about results in a lifestyle that really separates us as true Christians from the rest of the world. My hunger and thirst to be right before God is so real, so urgent, that it becomes my first priority. A priority that clashes with the world's priorities. So what Jesus is talking about is a lifestyle. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus says this about righteousness. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they could brag about their religion because they faithfully kept every letter of the law, right down to the tiniest details. And yet Jesus can tell them, you're still missing the mark. If you're going to try to build your own case on why you should be allowed to enter the kingdom of heaven, then you're going to have to do a much better job than what the Pharisees were doing. But you see, the Pharisees' righteousness was composed entirely of the outside action component of righteousness. It was all on the outside. It had nothing to do with the internal character component of righteousness. The righteousness Jesus is talking about in this verse starts here on the inside and then goes forth. In Matthew 6.1, Jesus goes on to say, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now why would I practice my righteousness in front of others? It goes back to the same thing. Approval. I'm looking for approval from men and women, believing that this is going to make me shine like a good saint and earn earn me an entrance into heaven. But Jesus says quite the opposite. There will be no reward. Finally, in Matthew 6.33, Jesus says this, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I would suggest to you that this Matthew 6.33 is saying nearly the identical thing that our verse today, Matthew 5.6, is saying. But it gives a little bit more specifics. Whose righteousness are we to seek? If we are returning, or if we are equating righteousness with approval, whose approval are we to seek? God's. This is to be our first priority. So let me put this all together for you. This is the righteousness that Jesus is speaking about. We lack righteousness of our own, yet we are to hunger and thirst for it. This hunger and thirst has a direct impact on our life, the way we live our life. And the righteousness we crave begins in here. We abandon our efforts to obtain the praise and approval of men, and we focus our life on gaining God's approval, which becomes more important than anything else. So let me ask you, do we have a bit of a dilemma if we're told that no one is righteous, not even one? How how are we ever going to do what Jesus has told us to do? 
Can you give me the answer? Are you awake? What's the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Here's the good news, folks. It's from 1 Corinthians 1.30. For it is from God alone that you have your life through Christ Jesus. He showed us God's plan of salvation. He was the one who made us acceptable to God. He made us pure and holy and gave himself to purchase our salvation. So let me ask you, who is our righteousness? Jesus. Where does our righteousness come from? Jesus. What are we really to hunger and thirst for? Jesus. Jesus himself. How does this transform my life then? Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. What should be found in our hearts then is the righteousness of Christ. All the same desires of Christ are what is to be found inside. So let's explore a few details about hunger and thirst. Throughout Scripture, hunger and thirst was a common way to express a, a spiritual desire. But there's an intensity in the desire, as Scripture expresses it, that we don't often experience in our world today. Few of us have ever experienced true hunger. Few of us have ever experienced true thirst. And that's prim primarily because we can immediately satisfy those needs when we have them. Unfortunately, this causes us to lose the, in, the intensity in the need that is often associated with hunger and thirst in the Bible. In the ancient world, you might go for a day or two without food or with very little food. You also might go for periods of time with an intense thirst. So I want you to, to note that this is an expression of a very real sense of urgent need the fact that Jesus is using both hunger and thirst in his statement means that he is highlighting the sense of the need or the desire. Jesus isn't talking about a mild desire to have some spiritual nutrition. No, he's talking about something near starvation. A desperate hungering in our heart to be made right with God. And when we pursue that hunger and that thirst, we will be blessed, we will be filled. Now let me ask you what happens when we become extremely hungry or thirsty. Other matters begin to become less important, don't they? Our priorities tend to shift. We become focused on our immediate need of satisfying that hunger or thirst. And when we become extremely hungry or thirsty, we will even begin to take some risks. We might venture into eating or drinking things that we normally wouldn't. We'll make decisions that we might not normally make. There's an example of this in Genesis 25, verses 29 to 34. It's the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau comes in from the field where he's spent a considerable amount of time and, 
And he's got it in his mind that he's so hungry he's going to die. He thinks he's going to die because of hunger. And he comes upon his brother who's making some food. And he asks his brother, give me some of that food. I'm about to die. But his brother won't give it to him until Esau relents to selling him his birthright. It's a brother thing, you know, how brothers are. You got what I want and I got what you want. So Esau gives in and, he, and his response to Jacob is, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? And at the end of that story, the Bible says, thus Esau despised his birthright. This is an example of how unwise we may become when we let ourselves be controlled and ruled by our hunger and thirst. In fact, I would suggest to you that in our attempts to satisfy our insatiable hunger and thirst for the things of the world, we may end up despising spiritual matters. So what I want to do is apply this hunger and thirst idea to our own souls. And let's do a little soul examination this morning. I want to ask you, how is your appetite for the things of God? Are you experiencing a hunger and thirst for righteousness? Many times when we are sick, our hunger vanishes. Nothing appeals to us. We stop eating. We also have a tendency to stop taking in the fluids that we should be taking in. If there is no hunger for God, then I'm afraid you may have a serious condition. In fact, it may be so serious that you are not alive spiritually. So let me ask you again, are you hungry or thirsty for God? If you are, that's a good sign, actually, because hunger indicates a sign of life. So my next question would be, how are you attempting to satisfy that hunger and thirst? We are aware of our hunger or thirst, but we're often tempted to satisfy it in inappropriate or insufficient ways. I like what John shared this morning about the phone. So many times our phone, our devices, ends up to be a way we attempt to satisfy that thirst. We go after the things of the world. Now the things in the world in and of themselves may not be bad. But worldly things cannot satisfy the deep desire that our soul has. That it cannot reach that craving. They only satisfy on the surface. And so what we end up doing is getting more and more caught up in the things of the world, trying to satisfy that hunger and thirst. Or second, we may be tempted to turn to sin. And let me tell you, Satan is very capable of disguising sin as something as the answer to what will satisfy that hunger and thirst in our souls. This is what you need. And he readily helps us find all kinds of excuses for sin. It's just a little sin. It's just one time. It's not really sin. The world doesn't call it sin. It's not hurting anyone else. And what we end up doing is taking in something that is actually poison or death for our soul. So I want to ask you again, 
what's in your diet? Or more specifically, what's in your spiritual diet this morning? Now besides the Jesus answer, are there more specific things that we can point to that God uses to satisfy this hunger and thirst within us? There are, so let's take a quick look. In John chapter 4, we find the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And in the conversation that Jesus is having with this woman, he is immediately addressing the spiritual thirst that he sees in her soul. But for the first part of the conversation, this woman just thinks that Jesus is talking about physical water and thirst. And it's not until Jesus points out the fact that she is on guy number six in her efforts to satisfy her thirst that the light bulb goes off in her head and she understands what he's talking about. Jesus tells her that he can give her living water with which she will never thirst again and it will even become a spring of water welling up to eternal life within her. Now further along in that same story, Jesus' disciples are encouraging him to take in some food. And Jesus tells them that he has food that they know nothing about. And of course the disciples, they're confused, they're thinking that Jesus is talking about physical food. Until Jesus finally tells them that the food he has is to do the will of the Father who sent him and to finish the work. This is what satisfies Jesus' soul. Now we don't have to wonder about what the water is that Jesus is offering. Because that becomes clear in John chapter 7. It records this, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. See, the spring of living water is the Holy Spirit. And if you are a Christian, you have this spring of living water within you. There are no Christians that do not have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. Why are so many Christians still thirsty then? I think it is because we can control the flow of this spring by remaining in control of our lives. We have the Holy Spirit, but we fear letting Him control, having full control over us. We want change in our lives, but we fear He may bring too much of it. So we have one foot in the church, we have one foot in the world, and the Holy Spirit gets only what we are willing to give Him. And I think for many of us, we might find the Holy Spirit stuffed into a corner of our soul while the rest of our soul is filled with the cares and concerns of this world. What are you doing with this source of living water? Are you tapping into it? Or do you have it capped off? Or do you have your own control valve on it? I don't want too much of you, Jesus. Not too much. Because I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be laughed at. I don't want to be seen as a Jesus freak. But there is no reason for any Christian to ever be thirsty. 
because found in this spring of living water is every blessing available to the child of God. Our thirst for righteousness is satisfied by having all of God. Everything in Christ is ours, and having the Holy Spirit means that we are in Christ. So letting the Holy Spirit fill us completely and then spill over to impact the lives of others around us is what satisfies our thirst as well as the thirst of others. So what is the food that satisfies us? I think it is the same food that satisfied Jesus. To do the will of the Father and to finish the work. What is the will of the Father? What was the work that Jesus was doing? It was to provide salvation and redemption and sanctification for men and women. And while he was here to provide an example for us of how to live. So how does this satisfy our hunger? I think we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And we continue doing the will of God and finish the work. What was the will of God? 1 Thessalonians 4.3 it, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Romans 12.1-2 tells us that we should be transformed. Why is this sanctification and this transformation important to us? Because it means God's judicial approval for us. What is the work that we are to be doing? I think part of it is to work in partnership with God toward that end of our sanctification. Philippians 2, 12-13 tells us, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work in His good pleasure. And we work alongside Him in that. When we know we are being obedient to God. When we are making an earnest effort to live life holy, when we are trying to live the way that Jesus taught us to live, then we know we have His approval. And the hunger for righteousness is satisfied. Our life is given meaning. It's given purpose. And we can know that we are on the path of success. That's what satisfies our hunger. In our text today, we're given the promise that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, will be satisfied. Filled here is related to gorging, to fattening. We're going to be filled. And it is both a future and a present promise. Right now, we can be filled with the life of Jesus, who has given us His righteousness. We already have His approval. And God has given us His Spirit as a down payment. But further filling is going to come when He returns to take us as His own to be forever with Him. Folks, God gave us the greatest self-help book man will ever need. Will we read it? Will we actually apply it consistently and diligently? Because here's the truth. If you want righteousness, you can have it. If you want a closer walk with God, you can have it. 
If you want a better marriage, you can have it. If you want to be free from sin and bad habits, you can have it. If you want joy, peace, purpose, fulfillment, you can have it. You can have as much of Jesus as you would ever want. Ultimately, it boils down to how badly do you want it. Just how hungry are you? For many of us, I think we have as much of Jesus as we want. For others, we're as close to God as we care to get. We'll happily take in the benefits and the blessings of Jesus, but we don't want to deal with the more difficult heart issues, that internal heart issues. We don't want the real battle that it takes to battle our flesh and self-centeredness. We don't, want, we don't like the idea of crucifying ourselves every day. We don't like the battle that it entails to really be Christ-like. And so, instead we settle for the junk food of the world, and that leaves us ever searching, ever hungering, ever thirsting. So one more time, I want to ask you, what is in your spiritual diet this morning? Is it Jesus? Let's pray.